Hello and welcome to the Light from Light podcast with me, Daniel, and with my good friend, Brother Thomas Therese, comma OP, OP and uh, <laughs> Dominican friar of the English province. Well, you are, I'm not. Mm-hmm. Great to be back for another episode today, and we're going to be talking today about St. Therese of Lisieux, the little flower, as she's known by, and we're recording on the feast day, on her feast day, the 1st of October. Yeah, happy feast day to you, Brother Thomas, Therese. Thank you very much. <laughs> For our listeners, if you didn't know, Brother Thomas also has a, a second name, Brother Thomas Therese. A middle name, is it, or do you count it as a first name? Uh, that's a good question. I haven't really thought too much about it. Some people hyphenate it, making it a first name. Um, I, I mean, I tend to, I suppose, treat it a bit like a middle name, really. Um, mm. But yeah, it was a name that I took when I made simple vows in the order. Um, yeah, so in the order, I'm known as Brother Thomas Therese. So you, you took on the name, so it's obviously very important to you mm. uh, because of, yeah. you, you must have some affinity with St. Therese. And because St. Therese is such a, a, a wonderful saint and has played quite a big part in, in my life and an even bigger part in your life, we thought we would have an episode on this, seen as we're recording on the same day. So for our listeners, Brother Thomas, Therese, <laughs> could you give a summary of, of her life? Why, why is she important? When does she live? So Therese is from the 19th century. Uh, she died very young. She died at the age of 24. So she was born on the 2nd of January, 1873, and died in September, uh, the 30th of September. So not today, but yesterday. Um, in 1897 um she was a carmelite nun uh from a place called Lisieux, which is in normandy in northern france uh she wasn't born there she was born in alençon and she her mother made something called alençon lace interestingly her parents are both saints um uh louis and Zélie martin uh yeah her her sisters have had various causes and things like that so I think I'm. I think I'm right in saying that her her mum died when she was very yes. young. So Therese is the youngest of nine. I think nine mm-hmm. children. She then talks about some of the older sisters becoming like mums to her, as uh, as she grows up. But where did she settle then? So, so she was born. Where did you say? So she was born in Alençon, and her mum had a lucrative sort of lace making business. Um, Alençon lace has now been declared a sort of cultural world heritage um item of importance but her mum used to make this sort of lace so much it was so successful actually that her dad stopped um his business to support his wife's business um because it was doing doing better um but yeah they moved to Lisieux when she was very young uh her father actually paid for the high altar in St Peter's Basilica which is the old basilica in Lisieux um and yeah they have a very strong connection with the cathedral and if you ever go to Lisieux you can see the Carmel where she was a Carmelite nun with um uh one or two of her sisters I think and um her I think two of her sisters and her cousin I think joined the same Carmel in Lisieux and the Basilica St Peter's uh the old Basilica there is where she had her confession had and the confessional is still there um, there's a chapel at the back which is listed in mentioned in in some letters from her and her sisters and things and the high altar as i say was uh paid for by by her dad 
but there's another basilica in Lisieux as well called the Basilica of St. Teresa of Lisieux, as some people call it the Basilica of the Little Flower, I think. And it's the second most popular place of pilgrimage in France after Lourdes. Uh, so when me and Dan went on our went on our tour of France, uh, the first stop that we made, I remember, was Lisieux uh, to go and see our little friend, um, our little friend whose body is incorrupt, who you can, yeah, you can go and see in, in Carmel. Uh, she's one of the most popular saints in the church, um, precisely because her, her little way became very popular and her autobiography is probably the most wide read autobiography probably in history mm. uh, would be my guess uh, it was very important to soldiers during world war one and world war two who would take copies of her autobiography into the trenches uh lots of people um associate their lives being saved with her intercession either from illness or uh, in times of war she herself wanted to plant the cross on every shore she said so she wanted to go and found a uh, a carmel um in the east but she became ill so she couldn't go she eventually got tuberculosis and died at the age of 24. she had lots of different jobs when she was a carmelite nun she'd been sacristan uh she was novice mistress for a while um but she's also known because she had doubts about her faith particularly in the last 18 months of her life she matured a lot uh, very quickly uh, lots of people would sort of see but in the different manuscripts there are three different manuscripts a b and c and then various notebooks which were um taken where people wrote uh sayings that she'd said on her deathbed and things so so what are the manuscripts three different manuscripts yeah you have three different manuscripts so she was asked by her uh superior who um i think it, she changes superior in the middle of of the manuscripts i think one of whom is her is her sister um She's asked, I think, by her sister to write down, her blood sister, I mean, who becomes her superior, Mother Agnes. She's asked to write down an account of her childhood and her life and a story of a soul. And this was actually quite a common practice for nuns at the time. You know, there used to be uh, sort of round robin, round robin sort of messages sent between the various Carmelite priories. Um, of you know pious stories about a sister who died or something and um, she was collecting but I mean this was obviously much more substantial because it was a whole autobiography of her life but she didn't want to write it initially did she, when she and was it, well no that's what she says she says initially that she she did it in obedience and um, to um, to her superior to to the the prioress of the of the Carmel yeah and she you see between the different i mean now in the autobiography of a soul we just have it as one book um uh one autobiography one compiled book but it was written down in three different notebooks which by scholars of therese are called manuscript a manuscript b and manuscript c and people notice a change in the earlier in her earlier writing to her later writing which they recognize is a certain sort of maturity which comes from the difficulties and the battles that she faced. So how long was she writing over? What was the period that she was writing over? Well, it was it was about two years. So she began writing, I think, in January of um, 1895. Um, and obviously she died in 1897. So, yeah, it was roughly roughly about two years i think like 18 months or something like that. i wonder if she started writing it before she got ill 
so she, she died of tuberculosis, but she had a number of illnesses, didn't she? In those, she became quite frail over the, over, over that time. I mean, her final years were were marked by a sort of decline, sort of slowly. Yeah, that's true. And tuberculosis was the final thing she had observed a fast. I think in eighteen ninety six, and when she went to bed, she says that she sort of felt sort of a, a, like a bubbling sensation and it was then blood sort of she finds blood on her on her pillow or on her handkerchief or something the next morning and she says this is when she first realized that she was ill and that she could die and she talks about how you know i realized that my spouse was coming for me or something so it, it was in 1896 i think were the first signs of tuberculosis uh, but I don't think it was diagnosed until un- until a bit later. So during her life, she, she wasn't that popular. Were people going to visit her? But obviously after her life, she became yeah. quite popular. I mean, she had a couple of, um, uh, I suppose, spiritual children in many ways. I mean, she used to call them her brother and things like that. Her, she had some priests who she would write to. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it's certainly not the sort of popularity that she has now. She lived a life of relative obscurity. She was uh, enclosed. But I mean, look at her legacy. Uh, her legacy is absolutely huge. There aren't many people who've who've never heard of her. She's one of the most popular Catholic saints. Her autobiography is probably one of the most read autobiographies. Uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, the reason why she took the name Teresa was after Therese of Lisieux, um, and uh, in part, the, the work that Mother Teresa did was because of Teresa Plissou's uh, talking about the little way of love. Um, so her influences, I mean, somebody once said of Thomas Aquinas, you know, oh, look at this dumb ox. And his teacher, Albert the Great, St. Albert the Great, said this dumb ox will have his bellowings heard throughout the world. And I think in, to some extent, the same thing is true of Therese of Lisieux. That's just one of the many, I think, parallels between Thomas Aquinas and Therese of Lisieux. Um, uh, Therese, while she lived an enclosed life, um, and it, it, it was by no means, it was by no means certain that she would, she would, um, become so popular after her death she does say herself in her writings i think that she recognizes that she has a bigger role to play in the life of the of the church and things than than is immediately visible when she is here in in her earthly life and she says you know i'll shower down roses uh from heaven and like many saints she says i'll do far more good for you when i'm in heaven than than i have here um so she recognizes that she has a greater role uh, to play in the life of the world and the life of the church, uh, even during her lifetime. Um, but it's true to say that, yeah, you're right. You know, there weren't crowds flocking to Lisieux Carmel to catch a glimpse of her, like people did with Saint Padre Pio, where there'd be hours and hours of people say, queuing. I was going to say the same thing. That, that's yeah, Padre Pio, or even at the French Saint John Marie Vianney. So. Yeah. Yeah, so she was she was relatively unknown unknown until uh, I say relatively unknown. She was almost entirely unknown until after her death, except by a few uh, a few people who she wrote to and by her sisters and her community. And then obviously after her death, she had a, a huge huge impact. These writings became 
recognized for, for what they are and, and well published and even by the first world war as you were saying the soldiers would be taken a little book of devotional and that's not long after her death when you think about it. she died in 1897 yeah and then the first world war happens you know fairly fairly soon after um I, I think one of the enduring appeals about Teresa Flissue is that she has a very profound theology, but it's something which is practical and personal and based on her own experience rather than being speculative and academic. Well, she, she would recognise that herself, wouldn't she? Remember, she, she talks about the great Carmelite saints, John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila, and they they are able to fly up to, to heaven so easily with their mm. amazing thoughts. But... She has a, a quote where she just opens her arms and allows God yeah. to raise her She up. also says, um, uh, so, so this is a quote from her story of a soul. She says, but it is especially the gospels that sustain me during my hours of prayer. For in them I find what is necessary for my poor little soul. I'm constantly discovering new lights hidden in mysterious meanings. I understand that I know from experience that the kingdom of God is within you. So she, she knew from experience the truths of the gospel. Jesus had no need of books or teachers to instruct souls. He, the doctor of doctors, teaches without the noise of words. Never have I heard him speak, but I feel that he is within me at each moment. He is guiding and inspiring me with what I must say and what I must do. That's quite early on. That's manuscript A in which she, she says that in her story of a soul. It's beautiful. So you do... It's it's not that she, um, in some ways, I suppose you you might see some influence there of something like the Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis, who's fairly scathing, I suppose, sometimes of, of intellectualism that, that he sees in his time, and the danger of pride coming with the sort of inter, uh, uh, with intellectualism, and both he and Saint Teresa of Lisieux, of course, emphasis uh, the, the emphasis is on humility. Um, that being said, it's not that Teresa Flissou is anti-intellectual and doesn't think the intellectual life is not important. She talks about the greatness of Thomas Aquinas, for example. Um, she does think that it's important that people know their catechism and know their scriptures. That's something that's that's a given for her. But at the, at the same time, her theology is something which is not... Um, I mean, it is something which is, for its time, actually fairly innovative. Uh, but it's not um, not academic in the way that Thomas Aquinas is. Now, I think one of the big mistakes that people make with Thomas Aquinas is they assume that, oh, yeah, he's a great academic, but he's not a mystic. And with Teresa of Lisieux, they think, she, oh, yeah, she's a mystic, a great mystic, but she's not a doctor. Well, no, 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 no. I think that's thoroughly a misunderstanding of Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas' theology is thoroughly mystical. And the same thing of Teresa of Lisieux. Teresa of Lisieux's doctrine is no less eminent. In fact, it's preeminent, I think, because it's so readily understandable. And that's one of the things that people said about Thomas's theology um, when when uh, they said that Thomas's uh, doctrine was was thoroughly preeminent because of its clarity was one of the things that Leo the Thirteenth, I think, said when he wrote an encyclical, Aeterni Patris, in which he reflects upon the teaching of Thomas Aquinas. So they're both um, they're both. Doctors of the Church. You mentioned that term there. Yes. Uh, can you explain what that means? What makes what makes her a doctor of the Church? Well, what makes her well? This is a very interesting thing. So the criteria necessary to become a doctor of the Church has changed uh, throughout history, and this is one of the reasons why people 
uh, both supported her becoming a doctor of the church in 1997. And one of the reasons why a small group of people, a very, very small group of people, um, opposed her becoming a doctor of the church because they thought, well, if she becomes a doctor of the church, you know, then you've taken away all meaning of what it what it means. But what people spoke about in in defense of her being awarded this title of doctor of the church was that her doctrine was clear, her doctrine was preeminent, and there was something that she added uh, to uh, theology. Also that it, that it weaved together in a whole synthesis it all sort of stacked together it wasn't um contradictory instead it was illuminate it illuminated uh the christian truth and the gospel uh for people and helped them to live by the gospel so it was eminently practical uh eminently sensible eminently faithful to the teaching of the church and to the gospels and helped uh, people to understand the truths about God and about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So is it a doctor in terms of a teacher or is it a doctor in terms of a healer of the soul or because medicine both. to soul? <laughs> oh, a bit I, I would say both. I'd say a bit of both. I would say the, the writings of Teresa of Lisieux do uh, heal your soul in the sense of you have a sort of... So I, I'm going to get a bit Dominican now. In Dominican spiritual direction, there are three... There are three paths, really. You have the, the the purgative element where you're purified of your false your false beliefs and your false practices and things, and then you have the illuminative dimension whereby your uh, your mind and your soul are enlightened to understand the truths of God and to and then you have a unitive element where you accept them and you're united to the Lord. So you have a period of purification, a period of of illumination, and you have um, unity. Uh, with God and Therese of Lisieux's teaching um, and her example and her intercession fits exactly into that. So it corrects false ideas uh, about God. So the, the my least favorite heresy uh, is I'm not sure I've spoken about this before. What's your favorite heresy? <laughs> My least favorite heresy. <laughs> the one that really annoys me most, I think, is Jansenism um, and uh, Jansenism. Not Albert Jansen. And Albigensianism, I think, is awful as well. I mean, all heresies are awful, of course, but Jansenism is the one that really annoys me. So, okay, uh, so, so quickly, what, what's, a heresy is a, is a wrong belief or a wrong teaching. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so Jansenists taught some of God's commandments are impossible, even for just people to keep. And therefore, many are damned. And it's heretical to say that Christ died and shed his blood for all people. And... I mean, these Jansenist views were condemned by Pope Innocent X in 1653. Uh, but the effect of Jansenism, particularly in France and in the Netherlands, persisted for quite some time. And I think even today and sometimes in today's church, you can detect, I think, hints of it. But I think it's worth noting that great saints like St. Vincent de Paul preached against Jansenism. And certainly the writings of St. Therese of Lisieux, I think, are a very good antidote to uh, Jansenist beliefs about you know everything is is so hard Therese's little way is a way of humility and it's a way of trust in the Lord trusting in God's mercy and in God's love and her insights come from a reflection on scripture and her life experience and what she understands about uh, God through her uh, uh, intellectually sort of helps her to see what it is that he communicates to her her teaching is Christocentric 
uh, everything comes back to Jesus very explicitly in her writings in a way which is much more pronounced than average for her time. Similarly, she's thoroughly Trinitarian in her thought and in her writing and very explicitly so. And yeah, she has a very keen awareness of the profundity of God's mercy and God's love, uh, which is something which, you know, just over 100 years earlier in the throes of Jansenism uh, was something that that was not emphasized. God's mercy and God's love was not emphasized uh, by by the Jansenists, and which grew in northern France. It was in northern France, really, that Jansenism really had its stronghold and the cultural sort of effects will have been pervasive even to Therese's time. So she is, a, yeah, an excellent antidote uh, against false belief. So it, it sort of purges you, I think, of uh, harmful beliefs or beliefs that are harmful to, to your flourishing and to your soul. Uh, it's also illuminative because it illuminates you to the reality of God's mercy and love and helps you to trust in God's mercy and in God's love. And thereby it brings you to a fuller and closer union with God who is truth uh, and God who is love how would how would you explain the the little way as it's called her little way to to someone who's mm. never heard it before what would make it appealing to to the general public the little way is the way of humility and the way of having confidence in the mercy and love of god what on earth could be more attractive and more appealing than focusing or having at the center of your theology as the as the bedrock of everything that you build your life upon as god's mercy god's love and thereby his grace she's very much a sort of a, a saint of the beatitudes she she reflects on the idea of being poor in spirit and poverty is a very key theme i think in her in her writings and so she has lots of doubts and um, she's worried about, well, I say worry tentatively, she's very conscious that she's a sinner. She's conscious that she has lots of doubts, but she doesn't allow these things to, to overcome her. And I think a lot of ordinary people identify with that. Everybody has doubts at some point in their life. Everybody at some point in their life hopefully recognizes that they're in need of God's mercy and his forgiveness and his love, in need of his grace, that we can't save ourselves. We need a savior. Um, and she shows us, well, this is exact, is precisely because we need his help that we can be confident that he will give it because he's our loving savior and he's our God and he's, he's our father in heaven. So it, cha it reminds us about the fundamental identity of God and our attitude towards God. And this is a very big shift to a lot of the pervasive views um, in the in the run up to to Therese. She says she says, you know, I stand before the Lord empty, empty handed. And, the, and there's another another quote that I absolutely love. It is true that I am not always faithful, but I never lose courage. I leave myself in the arms of our Lord. He teaches me to draw profit from everything, from the good and from the bad, which he finds in me. And that's something I think that absolutely everybody can relate to. 
everybody can relate to that. We're not always faithful, but having courage in our merciful and loving God and recognizing that whatever we, whatever we experience, whatever we endure, be it good or bad, uh, we may draw some profit from it, uh, hoping in his love and in his mercy. And of course, this connects to what you were saying before about, you know, things, things that, that people sort of recognize in her. I think people also recognize that she's a great friend and, and she has a very, I think, a very unique theology of friendship. And I think she develops a theology of friendship or takes a theology of friendship further in a philosophical and theological understanding. But also in terms of vocation, probably one of the things that she's best well known for, apart from this little way of humility and following God's merciful love, is when she says, my vocation is to be love at the heart of the church. So I just want to quote something from Therese now. She says, meditating on the mystical body of Holy Church, I could not recognize myself amongst any of its members as described by St. Paul. Or was it not rather that I wished to recognize myself in all? Now, this is very interesting. I could not recognize myself amongst any of its members. How many people in our world today look at the church and feel, I can't see myself among them? Will I feel at home amongst them? What's my purpose in life? What am I called to be? I think so many people in our society today are thinking, what is God calling me to do in my life? What, what, why do I exist? Um, you know, and she, what am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to do? And Teresa Flissou says, charity provided me with the key to my vocation. I understood that since the church is a body composed of different members, the noblest and most important of all the organs could not be wanting. I knew that the church being a body has a heart and this heart burns with love and that it is love alone which gives life to its members. I knew if this love were extinguished, the apostles would no longer preach the gospel and the martyrs would refuse to shed their blood. I understood that love embraces all vocations, that it is all things, and that it reaches out through all the ages and to the up uttermost limits of the earth because it is eternal. Then beside myself with joy, I cried out, O Jesus, my love, at last I have found my vocation. My vocation is love. Yes, I have found my place in the bosom of the church, at the heart of the church, and this place, O oh my God, thou hast thyself given to me in the heart of the church my mother i will be love thus i shall be all things and my dreams will be realized why do i say i am beside myself with joy this does not convey my thought rather it is peace which has become my portion the calm peace of the sailor when he catches sight of the beacon which lights him to port o luminous beacon of love I know how to come even unto thee. I have found the means of borrowing thy fires. Remarkable, remarkable things. And this again, I mean, it, it's prophetic. Uh, the Second Vatican Council and the, the church after the council has really emphasized how every single person is called to holiness. It's not just for priests and religious to, to or, or for a, a sort of an elect few or a few people who can, who can follow this way of perfection. Holiness is easier than we think and it's possible for everyone and God gives everyone the opportunity to become a great saint. And this is what Therese is getting at when she talks about charity and love. Thomas Aquinas says, uh, you know, charity is 
charity is everything basically charity is the most basic and fundamental thing that we all need charity is the queen of of the virtues it's the summit of the christian of the christian life why because god is charity god is love I remember a quote from mother teresa uh, which just came to mind because when you said mother teresa it was obviously impacted by saint teresa of lachou you know taking her name as as well um yeah mother teresa said not all of us can do great things but we can do small things with great love and i think actually that's a really good summary of the little way so we we can choose little acts of mm. of love no little acts which are full of love i think that's probably the right the right way of saying it yeah and that's what makes them great acts isn't it small acts done with great love yeah i think when someone first reads that autobiography what they will notice is that actually she does all these acts which are, are quite small really in in of themselves in and of themselves but then they are permeated with this great love so that she's able to do things which well, we, we wouldn't really want to, to do. I remember one of the stories where there's one particular sister who's really annoying her and she chooses to actually spend time with that Welcome that to religious life. <laughs> and that's, yeah, but it's religious life, but it's also family life and, and, and it's, it's life and society. And Absolutely. I think it's a life full of love. You'll have plenty of opportunities to show love to, to to people in religious life, charity and kindness and mercy and things. Everywhere, but in family life as well and in society, in your workplace, like all the time. It, I, I, I don't feel like being kind and, and loving to those yes. around me. You know, sometimes I feel like that. But actually, I'm going to make a cup of tea mm. for that person. I'm going to, to put great love behind that because of the love that god has has shown yeah. to me and the mercy that god has shown to me and i'm going to allow that to surge yeah. through me to the people around me and i think people can resonate with that and it's it's a little way but it's mm. a it's a profound way to always choose the act of greatest love mm. you, you've just reminded me of another quote from saint Teresa of Lisieux where she says i understand so well that only love could make me acceptable to god and that love is the only thing that i aspire to I, I think you're quite right. And I, you know, I, I, when you talk about family life and all the rest of it and the importance of love and, and showing and giving love and receiving love and things, I think you're absolutely right. And I think in, in religious life, for example, why, why is it that we call each other brother and sister? Uh, it, it's because there's something about it, which is a family life. And it's familial, yeah. It's familiar. Yeah. And in the documents, in the church's documents about, about um, religious life, it talks about how we're an eschatological sign. Yes, that's true. But then we're a sign also of of that universal call to holiness and drawing people closer to the Lord and, and trying to uh, show people those uh, ways in which uh, not only where the Lord is present in their life already, but how they can integrate uh, their, their relationship with God uh more fully into their into their lives and their homes and their family lives and things and just to to round off we we mentioned uh, briefly a few times about saint Therese being involved with vocations obviously she took a few people under her wing and wrote to them and and prayed for their vocations there's a, a couple of mm. priests that are quite significantly known um for being under her 
under her prayer. But she's also the patron of vocations, which is remarkable for a woman who, after joining the Carmel, never left the Carmel. But it shows her her impact. She loved vocations. She she prayed for them. She prayed for priests very often and um, prayed for, for families in need and things. Absolutely. So I think it's uh, important on, on a day like this to ask uh, St. Therese for vocations, to ask her to pray for vocations um, to all states of, of life. Well, she, she is patroness of all vocations, of course. She is just, she's not specifically patroness of vocations to religious life or specifically vocations to the Carmelite order, although she is those things. She's just called the patroness of vocations. So whatever state in life you are pursuing, uh, whether you're thinking about marriage, whether you're thinking about remaining single, whether you're uh, thinking about priesthood or religious life, becoming a Carmelite nun or whatever it is, pray to St. Therese of Lisieux for her intercession. I, I've, I've always found in my prayer life, whenever I pray to St. Therese, uh, she makes her presence known in a very obvious way. Uh, or in, on all, in fact, actually all of her feast days, ever since I've started praying to her, um, I've so I've received roses <laughs> even before even before I, I I took her name or even told people that I had a devotion to her, and um, people um, would come and give me roses on her feast day. Have you got one today yet? Ah, <laughs> uh, not yet. No, but the day is uh, the day is young. It's very very early. But yeah, I remember last year I sort of I got home, ooh, probably about half past eight or so. And uh, one of the students at the chaplaincy, who obviously knows my name is Thomas Therese, had left uh, a rose for me at the at the front of the of the house. There's also a great tradition, actually, on the feast of Saint Therese, that you give a rose to somebody who you think has a vocation to religious life. Uh, I know that some, particularly uh, female congregations um, of religious, will give a rose to a lady yeah. who they think. Uh, has a vocation to religious life as just as a way of encouragement and i hope you enjoy the rest of the feast day brother thomas and i hope our listeners do as well uh, remember to subscribe please to please subscribe to the podcast. <laughs> it's just a really good way of getting the podcast out to to more people um and and comment as well we, we like to take suggestions for episodes and see see where they where they go so yeah please like comment and subscribe as they say and we'll be back again soon for another episode. Thank you. And pray to St. Therese. Pray to St. Therese. <laughs> and read her autobiography of a read soul. It. <laughs> okay, bye. God bless you.